Well, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> verses 13 and 14. But as we kind of begin this morning, we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually here, but I, I want to talk a little bit this morning about preaching as we kind of begin. Um, some You probably don't know this, but but I've been taken through... Um, taking some of the guys through a little bit of a, a class on Thursday nights on preaching, just for some of those guys that, that fill the pulpit for us every once in a while. Um, I, don't, I don't claim to be a good preacher, and I don't think I'm, a, I'm, I'm some great preacher that, that people would want to listen to. Um, I don't even think I'm particularly gifted at speaking. I'm not a, a natural speaker. I'm not at all gifted in communication. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I marvel sometimes when somebody says, hey, thanks for the sermon, Pastor Mike, or good sermon, or even sometimes when somebody comes back again, I just, I just know, wow, God must really be working through, through, you know, I just, I honestly marvel at, at the way that, that it works. Well, you might wonder then, well, what in the world are you, are you doing preaching week after week? Why do you do this? And, you know, there's lots I could say about, about why I'm here and why I would do it, even though I don't feel particularly gifted, and especially in, in what we would call sermon delivery, the, the act of preaching. But one of the main reasons is, is that I, I think there's room to improve, even though I recognize that teaching is a spiritual gift. God calls people to ministry, and then he works through them, even despite their weaknesses. And And that's a reason why... I might try to do this even though I don't feel like I'm the best at it. So with kind of that out of the way, I want to talk about what makes for good preaching. I'm I'm bold enough to talk about what makes for good preaching, even though I maybe don't always feel like I hit the mark on that. But what, and, and I think this is helpful for us to think about, what makes a sermon a good sermon? What makes a sermon a good sermon? I, I would I would love to hear what, what you guys thought about that, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, and, and there's, there's more to it than what I want to say, and this is going to tie back eventually to Matthew 7, but when I think about what makes a sermon a good sermon, first of all, a, a good sermon is when it, when the sermon communicates God's truth. Preaching must be true if it's true Christian preaching, right? It, it has to be true. It, it, it must be God's Word. The sermon must come from and, and be about a passage of scripture from the Bible. And so good preaching preaches the Bible. It takes the, the text of scripture from the Bible and it, it understands that text and then it, it teaches the text to the people so that they know what it means and how it applies to them. Scripture was written for us, but it was primarily written to a certain people living in a certain time, going through certain events. Each book of the Bible was written at a particular time to a particular person or to a particular group of people. And the author of the book, the the human author, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was, was seeking to communicate something to those people. And so true preaching understands what the author was communicating to those people, and then it takes that meaning and it communicates it to the modern day hearers. So we could just kind of give a, a quick example. What, what would this be like? Well, for example, take Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. Well, who did Moses write Genesis to or, or who did he write it for? And if we think about it, we realize he wrote it to Israel for the people who are about to enter into the promised land. And what did those people need to know? Well, they needed to know who they were. And they needed to know where they came from as they entered into this new land. They needed to know that God created them. And they needed to understand how sin came into the world and how mankind was divided into various language groups across the world and how God chose their great, 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 great grandfather Abraham and made a covenant with them, and ultimately they needed to know that how they had become slaves in Egypt, and how they ended up in Egypt if they came from Abraham. So that's that's what, what Moses is communicating through the book of Genesis to those people. 
And so good preaching through Genesis would communicate what Moses, by the Holy Spirit, wrote to Israel. But then it would go beyond that, and it would show what the significance of that is for the modern listener. So the first aspect of good preaching is that it preaches the meaning of the text, or the texts plural, in their context. And so good preaching doesn't, doesn't read a text of Scripture and then talk about something else that that text reminded us of. It, it, it digs into that text. And it, we, we dig into what a text says and what it means. We don't, we don't jump off a text to something else. We dig into a text and understand it on its own terms. And so that's, that's kind of what I would say is part one of, of good preaching. So here's how to identify good preaching part one. When you leave, when you leave the sermon, when you leave Sunday, you understand better and you see clearer what a passage of Scripture means and what it says. And you would probably also understand why that passage says what it says and and maybe even how the author wanted his original audience to respond. So I don't know if you could catch all that, but when, when you leave, you should understand better and see clearer what a passage of Scripture means and what it says, and also you would understand why the passage says what it says, and and maybe even how the original author would have wanted the original hearers to respond. So that's part one. Part two of what I would judge as good preaching involves transitioning from part one, understanding the meaning, to now understanding the significance for me, the, the hearer of the sermon. So there's a a meaning in the original audience. Now, how do I, the modern day listener, respond to what that passage teaches? And so let's go back to Genesis. Well, it was written to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. But it was also preserved as God's word for all generations. And so if we think about that, in, in Genesis, there's almost a straight line from the, the ancient audience to the modern audience. Because we need to know what, we need to know what Israel needed to know. That, that God is the creator of the world, that He made us, that, that sin corrupted the human race. Now we're not about to enter into the promised land, but all of those things are directly applicable to us. We need to understand the world around us almost in the same way that Israel did. But good preaching always bridges the gap from the original meaning to the original audience to the implications of that for the modern listener. Another way to say it is to say that good preaching helps the listener to know how the passage of Scripture applies to them, how it applies to their life. And and, and then what, what happens then is good preaching brings the listener to a place where they know how they should respond to the teaching of a passage of Scripture. You should leave then knowing here is how I should think differently because of the truth preached or or here's what I should do because of what this passage says. And every passage of scripture there's there's something to respond to. In every single passage there's and every kind of communication there's a a response that's expected. And so in every passage there should be a, a sin to be avoided or a a sin to be put to death or a promise to be believed, or a, a example to follow, or a command to obey, or a warning to heed. Every passage of Scripture has a response built into it. There's always a proper way to respond to the truth, and, and good preaching helps make that clear so that when you leave, you know what God would have you to do, or to think, or to believe, because of what that passage says. And, and this is what I, where I really want to hit on, and this is why I'm doing this this morning, is good preaching, really good preaching, makes it so clear how you need to respond that you can't get around it. When, when, you, when there's really good, clear preaching, you, you know exactly how you should respond, and, and it almost backs you into a corner, if we could say it that way. You know exactly how you should respond, and you can't get around it. The best preaching presents the truth of a passage so well that you're almost compelled to respond. You you almost have no choice because you can see that God has spoken and you now either are going to obey or you're going to disobey. 
And so good preaching gets to what, what Steve Lawson would say, good preaching gets to the you. It, it, it brings you to a response. It brings you to a point of decision, to a fork in the road. And again, that response will vary depending on the texts. Some texts call us to put off a particular sin. Some focus on pursuing a holy practice or a righteousness. Others ask us to think differently about the world or to think differently about ourselves or to think differently about God. And so that's part two of good preaching. And so here's how to identify good preaching part two. When you leave, you understand the text better than you did before. And part two, you understand how you should respond to the truth of that text. And then there's a third component that I want to talk about just very briefly today. And that's, and then I'll tell you why I'm telling you all this this morning and why I'm doing this differently than I, I normally do. But the third component of good preaching involves the preacher himself. He should have had the truth impact him so that when he comes to preach, he comes having been affected by the truth and impacted by the truth of the passage that we're studying. The preacher should come to preach having having seen and felt the truth himself. And he should have wrestled with the truth so that he comes preaching what has changed his life and with an aim then of, of showing it to you so that your life will be changed too. And so the, the preacher's been impacted by the word and now he comes to impact you by the word of God. Preaching should be truth from God, truth from God coming through a life that's been impacted by that truth and then delivering that truth to others, aiming to change their lives as well. Now there's other important things that we could talk about and, and, and look at in preaching like introductions and conclusions and delivery and, and all kinds of things, word changes and tenses and, um, I don't want to talk to you about that at all this morning, but there's, there's other components of good preaching, but, but why am I telling you this? Why am I talking about this this morning? Why am I starting the sermon this way? And, and there's, there's really kind of two reasons why. First of all, I, I want you to know what's happening week after week, what, what we're doing, what, what, what our aim is, what our objective is. I, I want you to know what I'm doing, or at least what I'm trying to do each morning, each Sunday. And, and I want you to be able to judge or discern good preaching. And I want you to be able to judge and discern when it's bad preaching and teaching. And that way you can hold me accountable. You can say, Pastor Mike, I did not understand that passage any better this week, you know, or, or Pastor Mike, I did understand the passage this week, but I have no idea what I should do about it. Well, then I, you can kind of keep me accountable. And you can come then, if you, if you kind of grasp what, what I've just told you, you can come looking to understand the text and looking how it applies. Because I'm not always going to tell you every way it might apply to your life. And so you come and understand the text, text and then think, well, how can I put this into practice in my life? What do I need to think differently? What do I need to put off? What, what righteousness do I need to put on? What example should I follow? What, what command am I to obey in my life as, as it relates to me? And so that's kind of the first reason I'm telling you that is because I, I think it would be helpful for you to understand what's going on here on Sunday morning. But more to the point today, I, I, I want you to see what a great preacher we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is, and, and if you just, if we just look at this Sermon on the Mount, we could just study preaching from this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the best preacher ever. And he does those three things and he does everything in an amazing way in the way that he preaches this Sermon on the Mount. We're again, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and this is, this is pretty much this whole Sermon on the Mount. This is pretty much Jesus's first words in this Gospel of Matthew. Jesus isn't here. He's not expositing a passage from the Word. Jesus is the Word. He is the truth, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is truth. He is the living Word of God. His words are the Word of God because He is God. And Matthew brought them together by the Holy Spirit so that we would have a, a Spirit-inspired account of Jesus' sermon. Now, Jesus has told his hearers 
And he's told us as well exactly what a citizen of his kingdom looks like. The one to whom the kingdom belongs has a, a God-centered righteousness. That's what we've seen in this sermon so far. They're, they're not perfect. They're, they're not, they're not perfect, but they, they desire to be like God. They live to honor God in every area of their lives. They have a, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's a, a God-centered righteousness. Jesus has shown us this this person, that this citizen of his kingdom, and, and what he or she looks like. And now, in, in verses 13 and 14, he brings the sermon to a powerful conclusion, and he brings his hearers to a decision. So he has part one, he preaches the truth. Part two, he's now bringing us to this moment of decision. Are we going to obey, or are we going to disobey? He brings us to a fork in the road and he presents two options to us and, and only two options. He says, in effect, you must decide which way you will choose. Look at what he says there in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Let's, let's read our text together. It says there, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so Jesus commands his disciples to enter. And then he presents two options. There's a a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. And there's two paths. There's a, a narrow path and a wide path. Two paths Two ways, the easy and the hard, the broad and the narrow. And then there's two destinations, and there's only two destinations. It's either destruction or life. It's heaven or hell. There's two choices and and only two choices. And as we work through this conclusion, we'll see these two options over and over again, all the way to the end of the sermon, from verse 13 to verse 27. That's the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. And there's, there's these two options over and over and over again. There's two trees in verses 15 to 20. There's good trees and bad trees. They, they bear two kinds of fruit, good fruit or bad fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then there's Two professions of faith in verses 21 to 23. Both groups of people, both professors say, Lord, Lord, but only one actually does the will of the Father. Only one actually submits to Jesus as Lord. The other merely says that he is Lord. The one group does the will of the Father, the other prophesies and casts out demons, and they even do many mighty works in Jesus' name. But Jesus never knew them. They were workers of lawlessness. They did not live, and get this, this is really important, they did not live according to what Jesus commanded in this Sermon on the Mount. And look what he says to them in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 21 had said that not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. And verse 23 says, depart from me. These are false professors and they end up outside of heaven and in hell. And then in verses 24 to 27, they, Jesus presents two men. There's a wise and a foolish. These two men built their houses on two foundations, on rock or on sand. And the wise man's house does not fall in the storm, but it's not so with the foolish man's house. Verse 27 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so Jesus does a masterful job of bringing his hearers to a point of decision. In effect, he says, if you don't enter this life that I commanded you in this sermon, you will go to hell. And so to summarize then this whole thing on preaching, Jesus preaches the absolute truth from God 
on, on how we should be as his disciples, on how we should live and what we should look like. And, and then he tells us what will happen to us if we don't put that into practice. And then Jesus gets to the you and he presents the choice and he says, how will you respond? And he calls us to enter at the narrow gate and that's part two of good preaching. And so he tells us exactly the truth from God and he brings us to this decision point where, where he asks us, how will we respond? And he commands us to respond and to take the one way. And as for part three, we see that Jesus perfectly exemplifies everything that he calls us to. Everything that he has said in this sermon, he perfectly exemplifies. Jesus lives by his own laws. He comes earnestly and he comes sincerely and he calls us to enter at the narrow gate that leads to life. And so we'll look at what he says then in our passage, verses 13 to 14. We'll, we'll look at it under three headings today. And let me just say one more thing as we begin. This is, this is of utmost importance. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about this morning, we're talking about heaven or hell. Eternal life or eternal destruction. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, it, and, and, and we need to get this, the Sermon on the Mount is not merely a higher way to live the Christian life. It's not merely a, a, a higher path or a, a more sanctified Christian life. It's not just an ideal to strive for. Jesus is saying, this is the Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount is the Christian life. And if you are not this then you are not his. And so we have to ask ourselves honestly, have I entered to this into this life that Jesus described in chapters 5 and 6 and in, in chapter 7 verses 1 to 12? Have I entered into this life? Nothing is more important than looking at our life in light of this Sermon on the Mount. And so let's look at what Jesus says. Number one in the outline is... The exhortation, and I, I subtitled the exhortation, it's the, it's the urgent command. This is the, the urgent command in verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. In verse 14, Jesus explains, for the gate is narrow. And Jesus now paints a word picture of a narrow gate. A, a gate could refer to any kind of door or, or gate. Entrances to cities often had large gates which could be closed to defend them from the t attack. But this gate, this gate is narrow. The gate that Jesus calls us to enter into is narrow. And it's the narrow gate. There's, there's only one such gate that you can enter. It, it's the gate. There's one gate like this that you can enter that leads to life. This is the gate that and this is the way, the, the way and the gate that are associated together. This is the way that leads to life, we see in verse 14. Jesus, then speaking to his disciples, commands them to enter through this gate. Now, this verb enter is in a tense that, that makes it a, a one-time definitive act. When, when, when Jesus calls us to enter into this gate, it's a, a one-time definitive act. And the command is to enter. Come or, or go in through the gate, through the narrow gate. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about a literal gate that he wants his disciples to, to enter into. What is he talking about? What does he mean, enter through the narrow gate? Well, when Jesus uses this verb enter, he, he often uses it in reference to the, to entering the kingdom of heaven or entering into life. And just to kind of show you this a little bit, even in the, in the book of Matthew, just go back to Matthew 5 and verse 20. And we've, we've looked at this verse over and over again as we've looked at this sermon. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's that word there. You will never enter the kingdom. Same word. Or look at Matthew 7 and verse 21, just after our passage. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now turn with me then to Matthew 19, and we'll just see a a few other times where this verb is used to enter. Matthew 19 and verse 16 says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so this young man, he comes to Jesus. He wants eternal life. He recognizes he doesn't have it. In verse 17, Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is, there is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And there's that verb again, enter. If you would enter life. Keep the commandments. Now, keeping the commandments is actually not the way to enter into life. Jesus is, is showing this guy that, that he's not good enough to enter life. He's, he's showing him or he's trying to show him that he has sinned. And I, I look forward to preaching Matthew 19 in the, in the years to come. But in verse 21, Jesus tells this guy, he says, well, I've kept all these commands. He's not really aware of his own sin. But in verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what we can see from this is coming to Jesus and following him is the same or very closely associated with entering the kingdom of God, which is entering the kingdom of heaven, which is entering the kingdom or entering into life. And so entering eternal life is is closely related to entering the kingdom, if they're not exactly the same thing. Remember in Matthew 4, 4 and verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so to enter the narrow gate or to enter life or to enter the kingdom of heaven is on the, on the one hand, it's to repent. And to repent means to turn away from sin. To repent means to turn from sin to God. It's a 180 degree turnaround. When Jesus says, enter in the narrow way, he's telling you to, to make a 180 degree turnaround. You were, you were going one direction. You were living for sin and for self and you stop and you turn around and you go the other way and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you live for Jesus' sake and you live for righteousness. And so to enter then is to repent to turn away from sin and to turn to God. But but more specifically, to enter the narrow gate means to enter into the life that was described in the Sermon on the Mount. To enter the narrow gate means to enter into the life, to live the life described in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's helpful to realize as we think about this, who Jesus is saying this to and, and when he said it. He said this to his disciples those who had already been called to repent and and those who were already following him. But also we need to remember that this is also the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is the, this is the first time, if you think about it, this is the first time that he told them what they were called to, at least the first time presented to us in Matthew. And so this is the first time that they were hearing these things. And he presented to them, his demands as their king. And now he says, at the end of this sermon, he says, enter this narrow gate. So brothers and sisters and, and friends, you could be in the, in the very same position as those first disciples. Perhaps you never before heard what Jesus demands of his followers. Now you can come broken, right? We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount and I'm not going to go through everything that we've seen, but you can come broken, you can come sinful, you can come mourning over sin, but you you must come giving up your life for the Lord. You must enter through this narrow gate and and into everything that Jesus commanded in this sermon. Now listen now, if you don't enter this gate, then you are not in. 
If you haven't come through this gate, then you are not a Christian. And it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you say, Lord, Lord. It doesn't matter what you call Jesus. It doesn't matter if you do many mighty works in Jesus' name or if you think you prophesy or cast out demons. It doesn't matter what you think. You might think your profession of faith is as good as, as anyone can make. But if you did not enter into this life, into the life of the Sermon on the Mount, then you have not entered into the way that Jesus commands and there is no other entrance. There's not one other entrance. This is the entrance that we are to enter. Brothers and sisters, I had to honestly ask myself this week and, and as I, even as I was approaching this, this text, have I entered into the narrow gate? Now again, to enter doesn't mean perfection. Remember how this sermon started. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 5.3. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we saw that the mourning there was a, a mourning over sin in their lives and in their, over their bankruptcy of spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who, who might have strength, but that strength is broken and, and brought under control by the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Remember, these people who are entering this kingdom and entering this gate, they're, they're not as righteous as they'd like to be. They hunger and thirst for it, though they want to be righteous. They want to honor God. They want to live for His sake. And so to enter means you see your sin and you, you mourn and you now desire righteousness and you pursue it. It means that you want your life to bring glory to God. And you want your life to bring glory to God even when nobody sees what you're doing or, or how you think in your heart. It means you want to glorify God even if you lose your life doing it. Even if it means persecution or if it means the loss of possessions. You can't enter through this gate without letting go of everything except the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones liked to think about it as a turnstile, a turnstile, a narrow gate, a turnstile that you can't get through there with everything. You can't get through there with your baggage and your sin. You can only get through there by repenting and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting go of everything else. And so that's the exhortation, the urgent command, enter the narrow gate. Now, number two, we see the explanation and Jesus tells us about the danger of destruction in the second part of verse 13. So there's the danger of destruction. Number two, verse 13 again says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Jesus explains his call to enter the narrow gate by by giving the opposite position. There's another gate. And there's another way that leads to destruction. This gate is wide and the way is easy. Easy is, is more correctly spacious or wide or broad. There's a lot of room on this path. It's not so restrictive. It's not, it's not so narrow. And that's why many enter this way. That's why many go that way. This, this gate and this way doesn't actually represent the way of the world. This is, this is really key here too. This is really important to understand. This is addressed to religious people. This sermon is addressed to disciples of Jesus Christ, to people who call him Lord, or at least to religious Jewish people. And these people, these, these many people, they think they're on the way to heaven, but they aren't. And so this is to religious people and, and, and they're on this, this wide way. It's not the way of the world. It's the way of religious people who call Jesus Lord and, and they're on the way to hell. And in a sense, the wide gate and the, the wide way encompasses everyone then who, who don't go through the narrow gate, but this is addressed to Jesus's disciples. And Jesus is warning us that there is a, a so-called kind of Christianity that is not Christianity and that leads to destruction. There are prophets. We're going to see this next week. There are prophets who claim to speak for God who are false. There are trees that, that don't bear fruit that will, will try to tell you that you can be like them. There, there are deceivers who will try to lead you astray. Watch out for them. 
There are people who profess Jesus as Lord who won't enter the kingdom of heaven because they never entered at the narrow gate. And so we might ask, well, how will we know the right way? How will we know? Well, the wide way and the, 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 the broad gate, the, the, the wide gate, they don't make the same narrow demands. You see, this, this way, this broad way, this, this wide gate, it, on this way, you can keep your sins and you can stay on that way. On that way, you can live pretty much how you want. There's lots of room on the broad way for different, uh, we could call it different interpretations of scripture, different, different demands. The broad way says all you need to do is believe in Jesus. That's, that's good enough. All you need to do is believe in Jesus, but they, they won't tell you on that broad way what it really means to really believe. You see, we are saved by faith alone. We're, we're not saved by, by keeping this way. We are saved by faith and by faith alone, but don't underestimate the transforming power of true faith. Faith joins us to Jesus Christ. Faith connects us to the one in whom we believe. Faith means that, that we have spiritual sight and spiritual life. Faith sees the reality of sin and the greatness of the Savior. And so faith and repentance go together. I believe, therefore, I repent. I believe, therefore, I can no longer love sin and I can no longer live for myself because I believe in this great Savior who has died for my sins and this great God who is worthy of glory. Faith and repentance go together and faith and regeneration go together as well. To be born again is to believe. To be saved by faith is to be alive with Christ. To believe in Christ and trust in Him means I have become a new creation. The broad way doesn't, doesn't worry about such things. The broad way says you can, you can add that later, that all that holy stuff later if you want, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You don't need to. But the narrow way says no, faith and regeneration, faith and repentance go together. And when I truly believe, I will walk on that narrow way and I will go through that narrow gate and I will live the life that Jesus called me to in the Sermon on the Mount. That is true faith, saving faith. But the Broadway says we're, we're all going to heaven. Come along with us and, and so long as you say you believe in Jesus, come along with us on this broad way and you don't even have to worry about all those other things. The wide gate and the wide way won't demand much. There's lots of room and, and they won't tell you that you need to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. They won't tell you that, that God is great and that He is worthy to be lived for, that there's a low view of God on that broad way. It won't tell you that God is worthy or like we saw in Matthew 6 and verse 24, that no one can serve two masters, that he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. The, the narrow way tells you that God is great, that he is worthy to live for, that he is worthy to be loved and to be devoted to, and that, that if you come to him, you will delight to serve him as a slave to him. But because they won't tell you that and because it doesn't demand much, that is why there's many. And note what Jesus says, there are many on that path. But note too where that path leads. It leads to destruction. It leads to hell. It leads to eternal punishment. Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. Same thing, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And Proverbs 12 and verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And Jesus warns us then to avoid this way that leads to death. Avoid the Broadway. And so we would say, be wise and heed his counsel. Don't go with the crowd. Don't follow the, the, the group. Enter at the narrow gate where, where you might have to stand alone, but we need to go through that gate. And so there's the, the warning, the danger 
of destruction, the, the explanation that the Lord gives for, for the way is broad. Don't go that way. There's a danger on that path. And then number three, we see the exclamation, the, the difficulty of life in verse 14. It's, it's the exclamation, I called it. This final section comes from verse 14, which it doesn't read like an exclamation. If you look in your, your ESV Bible, most English Bibles actually translate it something like the ESV where it says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so the first word in verse 14 of the ESV is the word for. But there's a variant reading in, the, in some of the oldest manuscripts that could be translated like this. How narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life? And it's not a question, but it's a, an exclamation. How narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life? And the difference in the, the two texts is one letter off the front of the word. There's a, a word in Greek, T, or there's a, an oti. And that one little kind of O-looking letter, that is the difference. And it really doesn't make much difference in the meaning. It's either for, an explanation, or it's how, an exclamation. But I think the best texts have it as an exclamation. But for some reason, very few English Bibles translate it that way. And so Jesus exclaims then, how narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. Narrow is the same word that we saw in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. That word just simply means narrow. The word translated hard in the ESV where it says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That word translated hard. It means tight or cramped or congested or narrow. Sometimes, though, that word was used of oppression and of persecution. And that's why the ESV translated, translates it hard. And it could be that Jesus is saying that the, the way that leads to life is the persecuted way. It's a, a way of oppression and persecution. Facing the reality of being persecuted is, is part of the narrowness of what Jesus calls us to. Remember, Matthew 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And again in Matthew 5 and verse 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so persecution and, and responding to it well is, is part of walking on this narrow way. But I don't think Jesus is narrowing the narrowness down to just merely persecution. The narrow way, I think, again, includes everything that we've seen from Matthew 5 verse 3 to Matthew 7 verse 12. The Legacy Standard Bible translates this verse this way, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The gate is narrow and the way is constricted. How narrow is the gate? Well, Jesus says there that, that few find it. Few find it. And you can kind of picture here this, this busy, crowded, broad path with, with many people on it, with the, and, and, and as this kind of, this many people are kind of barreling down the crowded way, there's just a, just off to the side, there's a little, little gate over there that, that you can, you can hardly see or you hardly notice that thing. And that little gate kind of has a, a little path that, that's, that's kind of narrow that, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't find it unless you're paying attention, unless you're, you're being careful and watchful, you wouldn't notice that other gate. Jesus was asked about this in Luke 13, and I'd like you to turn to Luke 13 and look at this passage with me. Luke 13, starting at verse 23. Luke 13, 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Strive to enter, Jesus says. Strive to enter now because a day will come when it's too late to enter. That's what Jesus is telling us in Luke 13. Strive to enter now because there's a day going to come when the door is going to be shut. Now the few who are saved is in contrast to the many on the broad way, but those few will be a great number from all over the world, from east and west and north and south. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, here's the few, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so friends, if you would enter into that number, of those blessed people who are singing the the praises of God, then you must enter at the narrow gate. All are invited, but you must come on the Lord's terms. Last week we saw the promise of Matthew 7, 7 and 8, where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And the implication then is that many don't find because they do not seek. Jesus says, seek and you will find. And again, enter at the narrow gate. Enter at the narrow gate in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Seek and you will find. Well, we began by talking about preaching and I've I've done my best to show you what the text means and what it says. We've seen the exhortation, the urgent command to enter the narrow gate. We've seen the explanation, the, the danger of destruction in verse 13. There's many on this Broadway. There's many that came in the wrong gate. The exclamation, the the difficulty of life that we are to come in at the narrow gate and we are to to walk that, that constricted path. Well, how do we apply this? Well, I think we go back through the Sermon on the Mount. And we look at what it says there. And there it could be that there's a, a sin that you need to deal with in your life. A sin that, that you need to put off and that you need to mortify that, that is not in keeping with what Jesus commanded us in this sermon. It could be that there's some promises in especially chapter seven that on prayer that you need to apply and, 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 and take to effect in your life and claim those promises and go to the Lord in prayer. We see the example of this whole sermon that we are called to follow and many commandments that we are to obey. And even the warning that we are to heed that you must enter in at this narrow gate, that's how we apply this passage. And one more thing I would say in closing, closing is that the, the difficult way is a livable way. We can't live this by our power, but we can live this by the grace of God in our lives. It's a yoke. It's a, it's a narrow way. It's a, the Lord calls us to many things in this passage. It's a yoke, but it's a yoke that the Lord himself lives through us by enabling and tra- by transforming grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
A little later in this same gospel, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The difficult life on the narrow way is also a life of joy and peace by the Holy Spirit. It's a life of worship towards God. It's a life of of losing ourselves for Jesus' sake, but also of finding a new and better life in Him. Now, our tendency would be to, to hear these things and, and to not really examine ourselves. Our natural self will say, put this off a, a little longer. We can, we can enjoy one more sin. I can hear almost people reasoning in that, in that way, just, just a little bit longer, one more sin, one more time of, of disobedience. And we can easily ignore the exhortation of the Lord. We can put it off or we can leave it for another day. We can minimize it. We can justify ourselves. Steve Lawson sometimes says, tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Jesus told us to enter at the narrow gate. And having entered, we're to continue on the way that he laid out for us in this Sermon on the Mount. Anything else is both foolish and dangerous. Let's pray. Father, we, com- we thank you for this commandment and for this call for us to, to make a decision to enter into life. And Father, we pray for those who are here who have not truly entered into life and into this life in the Sermon on the Mount that you've called us to. And we pray that by your grace that you would save them. We pray that today would be the day that they enter. We pray that you would convict them of their excuses and and help them to, to put off their sin and turn from it and turn to live a life rejecting their sin, rejecting even their own selves so that they could live for you and for your glory. And for those of us who have entered, Father, we recognize that we fall short of all that you commanded us to do, and we pray that you would enable us through Christ in us to live this life and to live this way, because we recognize, Father, the the truth of it, that it is a, a holy, right, and good way. We want to live for you and for your glory. We want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And so we pray that you would Help us to live according to this way that you've commanded. We pray that we would do it in the way that we're going to sing about in a moment, that it is not us, but Christ through us. And so we thank you, Father, for this salvation and for this warning that you've given us today in Jesus' name. Amen.